to encourage you to open your Bible now in page 723 in your pew Bible, Psalm 97. Psalm 97. And I'm going to focus primarily on the last verse of this brief psalm, but I'd like to read the entire psalm just to give the overall context of what the psalmist is reflecting on. Psalm 97. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many islands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries around about. His lightnings lit up the world. The earth saw and trembled. The mountains melted like wax at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the Lord of the whole earth. The heavens declare his righteousness, and all the peoples have seen his glory. Let all those be ashamed who serve graven images, who boast themselves of idols. Worship him, all you gods. Zion heard this and was glad, and the daughters of Judah have rejoiced because of your judgments, O Lord. For you are the Lord most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. Hate evil, you who love the Lord, who preserves the souls of his godly ones. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light is sown like weed for the righteous and gladness for the upright in heart. Be glad in the Lord, you righteous ones, and give thanks to his holy name. Let's pray together. Our Father, we pray that today you might address our own hearts with your word. We pray, Father, that you might help those of us who identify areas of our hearts that need to be changed, that we would, Lord, find you replacing those things, particularly in gratitude, with a heart that is overflowing with gratitude. Lord, toward that end, we ask that your word might find its way into the deepest part of our personal lives, into what we believe, into what we treasure, into what we are craving for. We pray, Father, that you might have your way with us today, and may we all leave this place, indeed, overflowing with thankfulness to you in a new and fresh way. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. First point I'd like to suggest to you this morning in terms of my own thinking of this issue for my own heart is that ingratitude is the fruit of a discontented heart. Ingratitude is the fruit of a discontented heart. Having a lack of gratitude toward God is oftentimes revealed in those moments of life when circumstances that are trying come knocking at our door. Our hearts oftentimes at those moments become exposed because the real you comes out when the heated trials of life get cranked up. Did you know that? It's not that your kids, it's not that your car that doesn't work, it's not that your boss and the people that live your back door neighbor that drive you crazy, it's not those relatives that you don't want to spend time with Thanksgiving. Those people don't cause the lack of gratitude in your heart. 
we must understand that those people are the ones who oftentimes are the difficulties that are in our lives that sometimes think that we don't have anything to be thankful for, but it's something, it's in our hearts and what's already there that comes out in the middle of our trials. On numerous occasions, I think about the children of Israel. Here they are giving outward evidence of ingratitude when they are immediately beginning to complain, they're immediately beginning to grumble, and I I begin to see myself in them. Because it's amazing how how they do so. In Exodus 15, it contains a very long song celebrating the deliverance that God brought to them after 400 and plus years, 430 years of being in bondage. That's several generations. They have been miserable serving as slaves, don't have their own life at all, no freedom, and here they have, God delivers them in a miraculous, amazing, powerful way. The song celebrates that. And then what happens in the end of that chapter, very interestingly, at the conclusion of the chapter that celebrates this incredible deliverance of the children of Israel from the mighty army of Pharaoh that all drowned, the Sea of Reeds, we read this, the children of Israel were grumbling against Moses, beginning to question whether they should even be gone taking out of here. How in the world are we going to survive out here? We should have stayed back in Egypt. A few verses later, the same thing repeats again. Chapter 16, verse 2, the whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And then the children of Israel, having gained this freedom, I think one of the things that they expected was if God is so powerful and delivered us from the bondage of the Egyptians in such a powerful way, surely then our experiences in the wilderness will go well for us every day. I think they anticipated and expected God to give them a problem-free years of traveling. That he would give them smooth progression from where they are to where they need to be over a period of time. And when things did not go the way they expected, their discontented hearts magnified their problems and minimized their blessings. So I have in your notes there a very good, helpful quote from J.C. Ryle, which I had included in the newsletter for the month of November, And he observed, and I thought it was very helpful, he says, we are prone, isn't it true that all of us are prone to hide our blessings under a bushel? But we're very willing to set our troubles on a hill. Why is that? Why is it that our hearts are so frequently lacking in contentment? And why are hearts so often refusing to thank God? I would like to suggest one important and often forgotten factor that lies at the root of an unthankful heart, an ungrateful heart, is found right here in Psalm 97. It is misdirected worship. Look at verse 7. The psalmist says, Let Those be ashamed who serve graven images, who boast themselves of idols. The psalmist calls on everybody who worships false gods to repent of that worship and to worship the true and living God. And you're saying to yourself, now wait a minute. 
We don't have these little statues in our house. Uh, we don't have, well, unless you have collectibles or something that some people really do worship, but uh, uh, in terms of uh, ceramic and other things that are carved. But, but some of us, many of us don't have any kind of little statue that we're holding or taking with us and somehow thinking just like the Israelites that that's going to somehow give us good fortune. But may I remind you that the issue of idolatry, which was such a huge issue in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, is also a concern in the New Covenant. I draw your attention to 1 John chapter 5. When the, that little epistle ends, he ends on this note. He says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. This is John speaking. This is New Testament believers. What's he talking about? Well, all of us, myself included, when our hearts are drawn away from Christ and we no longer treasure Christ, we no longer treasure the gospel, we, at that point, haven't ceased to worship, but we continually are worshiping and inevitably, we have filled our hearts with idols. An idol tends to be those things that our minds, we set our minds on, that we set our hearts on, we set our affections on, whatever it is, instead of God. It could be something as nebulous as comfort. I just want to be comfortable. I don't want to have problems. I don't want to have people in my face. I don't want to have anything that's going to cause difficulty in my life. Other people say, well, I just want to have the perfect family. Is there anything wrong with having a good family? No, but they want the perfect family and they are longing to make sure that that happens no matter what. Become an idol. Other people want an orderly life, everything in its place. Other people want a, a certain uh, a corporate promotion. They want that retirement that's going to somehow launch them into some kind of life where they can do whatever they want and not have to worry about anything. And for many people, it's a vacation that's over the top that I just can't believe. It's so unbelievably wonderful. I can put it on my blog and I can put it out there on Facebook and people will just think, oh, what a wonderful thing. Some of us, myself included, it's the approval of other people. For others, it could be any of a hundred other things that our hearts get set on. And we say, that's what I live for. That's what I long for. That's what really gets me going. I don't know what your idol is, but I'll tell you, there's probably at least one, if not several, somewhere in our hearts. What does this have to do with ingratitude, for heaven's sakes? Where are we going here? The connection is made when you study carefully Romans chapter 1. I don't have time to unpack all of that, but I would just suggest to you that Romans 1 connects the dots of how, how idolatrous worship is oftentimes leading to this issue of ingratitude in our hearts. And what he does there in Romans 1 is Paul talks about the fact that God has made himself known in the world. It is so clear that God is in existence, that he is a God who is divine, he has eternal power, and that we are made for him. It's so obvious. But he says, people, myself included, all of us, by nature, we sort of say, I'm not going to act on that knowledge. I'm going to sort of, sort of suppress that. I'm going to hold that at, at bay because God is scary. And I'd like to be able to control my world. That's why idols are so wonderful. I think that somehow I can, if I get this, then I'll have everything just the way I want it to be. But when I worship God, sometimes I don't know how he's going to act. Oh, it's just scary. 
And what happens there? Verse 21 of Romans 1. is when we suppress the truth of God and we go off and we worship creation, we worship some idol, we get our hearts set on something else apart from God, it says we refuse to give God thanks. And that, my friend, is our real struggle. The result is we become fools. Our hearts, which are wired for worship, and we will worship someone, someone or something. I mean, we're all worshiping. Even the, the most determined atheist is worshiping something or someone. We're all wired for it. The question is, who are we worshiping? Or what are we worshiping instead of God? Our hearts are craving something that will never fully satisfy and the reason we oftentimes will slip into complaining and murmuring is because our hearts are captivated by some idol instead of treasuring Christ Amen. and all he is to us in the gospel. Now you say, well, wait a minute, what I want is a good thing. I understand that. There are many good things that there's nothing wrong with wanting those things. But our lack of intimacy with God through our Lord Jesus Christ oftentimes is driving us to inflate other things to almost religious proportions to make up for the absence of God in our hearts. As Brad Bigney says, you take something that's good. It could be a marriage. It could be a family. It could be your kids. And if you begin to assume that you're going to build your world around those things, and that's where you're going to find your significance. That's where you find your meaning. It could be your career. It could be anything. But if that becomes the thing that you want so badly, it becomes the ultimate thing in your life. Guess what? If that's what you're living for, even though you say Jesus is Lord, that's the functional thing you're living for, then your life is you're setting yourself up for all sorts of confusion and all sorts of issues in which you ache in your soul and realize I'm not getting what I really long for. And I'm convinced that's why many of us struggle with, we're not really thankful because our hearts are set on something other than God or someone other than God. Believe me, there have been many years, many times in the last 20 years where I've gotten to a Monday and you don't want to be around me on Monday. I'll just warn you right now. Uh, Mondays are not my good day. Mondays are the day I have an emotional, I have a physiological. I think my body often has had a lot of adrenaline on the Sunday. And Monday, I am at my low point. And that's why I no longer take Monday off for my day off. Uh, I used to, but my wife doesn't want to be around a miserable, old, grumpy old guy who, <laughs> who complains. And who always says such negative things on Monday and who just doesn't want to do anything. And, and so finally I realized that's not good. So I, took fr I take Fridays off now. But the point here, on Mondays, I can't even tell you how many Mondays I said, I'm resigning, I'm leaving, that's it, I'm done. I'm out of here. I don't deserve this. Or I don't want to deal with this. Or I don't want to hear that kind of attitude anymore. Or whatever it was. And I say to myself, so many of those times I became discouraged and complained about problems and obsessed with somebody else's weakness or somebody else's character flaw was my issues of saying, I put too much value in that 
and not enough value in what I've received from Christ. If my heart is occupied with an idol, if your heart is occupied with an idol, let me tell you something, folks, we struggle with it all the time then we end up relying on that particular thing or person or ideal. We look to that to somehow give me purpose and meaning and significance in my life other than Christ. And guess what? Therefore, I am inclined to be much more likely to murmur and complain and to sort of have a long list of grievances I bring to God and I'm just withholding from him the kind of thanksgiving that I should be offering to him? Because why? Because something is hindering me from getting the idol I really want. And therefore, my heart turns to God, and I'm murmuring against him because he's withholding from me what I think I deserve and what I think I expect to happen, and it's not happening. So I ain't got nothing to say, nothing, no thankfulness to you, O God, because my life's not working. Not surprisingly, if you take some time and look this up later today, the Apostle Paul, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 5, I think I put this in your notes, Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, he connects what? Idolatry and a form of greed. They come together. So that I desire to have, I'm not satisfied, I want it, I want it, I want it, I want it. And that kind of idolatry is an indication. If I'm not thankful, it's why? I'm discontent with where I am and what I have, and I'm not satisfied with God. And so I ask the question, what are the areas of my life, what's the area of your life where you're discontent? That oftentimes will surface some indicators of what might be an idol in your heart. What are you waiting for to change so that you can regain and enjoy and have flowing out of you a thankful heart and thanksgiving to God. That great pastor, Charles Spurgeon, I quote him often. He had a lot of good things to say. He said this, a gem of wisdom. If you are not content with what you have, you would not be satisfied if it were doubled. Think about it. I would urge you, if you struggle in this area, say, Lord, show me the idols of my heart. Psalm 139, search me, O God. Help me begin to find out what is it that I am hanging on to, what am I longing for, what is taking the place that you should have in my heart and life. Lord, I don't want to be a grumpy old murmuring follower of Christ. Give me a thankful heart. Help me find out what it is that's building this discontentedness in my heart and life. First playing, I would, again, put it off, take away, deal with the discontentedness. Then I'd like to move it in a whole other direction now, my friends. Point number two. Thankfulness is the overflow of a humble, satisfied heart. Thankfulness is the overflow of a humble, satisfied heart. How do we cultivate a heart that is increasingly, not perfectly, increasingly bringing forth the fruit of offering thanks to God. How do we do that? I have several suggestions, three actually. First one is this. According to the text there, Psalm 97, verse 12, be glad in the Lord and give thanks to his holy name. 
Well, first thing I would say is root our joy in God and not our circumstances. Anchor your joy to God and not necessarily what's going on around you. Easy to say, harder to do. Contentment is built on the understanding that God has already provided me all I need to glorify Him and enjoy Him. I'm going to say that again. Contentment is built on the understanding that God has already provided me all I need to glorify Him and to enjoy Him. True contentment is rooted not in our external environment. It's rooted in our internal state. It's what I believe, it's what I think, it's what my heart has found contentment in. And when our heart's primary purpose is to glorify God rather than live for my own glory, we are much more likely to fight off discontentment. And thankfulness to God is developed by constantly or consistently reflecting on who we are in Christ, who Christ is, and what we have in Christ. Taking time to take stock and and think what has been bestowed upon me by grace in the gospel in Christ. What is it that I now have that is mine to enjoy? And as you do that, you find yourself saying, I have less cravings for what I don't have right now or what I shouldn't be craving for. Think about it. Meditate on 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Think about the all-sufficient grace of God or think about the Holy Spirit who is in us, the gift that he gives every day is presence. Think about the Word of God. Think about the privilege of prayer. Think about the hope we have in Christ. Think about the presence of Christ. I'm with you always, even to the end of the world. On and on and on you can go. That might get the thankfulness pump primed a little bit, don't you think? The regular practice of deliberate reflection on the evidences of God's goodness, God's faithfulness, of God's kindness, it helps to stir up thankful hearts. And thoughts. So what did David do in Psalm 103? He starts talking to himself, and maybe you need to do this. And by the way, you're not crazy if you talk to yourself. We all talk to ourselves. Throughout the day, we're always talking to ourselves, evaluating things, saying, oh, my life stinks. I hate it when my wife does that. I hate it when my husband does that. What's with these people? Get out of my way. I got things to do when we're driving in a car, whatever it is. David talks to himself. He says, self. He says, oh, my soul. Self, bless the Lord. Forget none of his benefits. He's talking to himself. What's he saying? Hey, self, you are very likely to have forgotten what God is benefiting you with and giving you and bestowing upon you. You ought to give some thought to that. Samuel Johnson once wrote, Gratitude is the fruit of great cultivation. Cultivation. I have to think about it. I have to invest some mind and thoughts in this direction. It doesn't just come out of your emotions. Because our emotions are where? Oftentimes we're way down there saying, Oh, I'm so depressed. I'm so heavy. I don't want to have to get up today. That's our emotions. But our mind can say what? Self? You ought to get on your list now and think of some things you got to be thankful for of all the benefits God's given you. 
Contentment is not gained by adding something to my life from the outside, but purging out covetousness by taking delight in what God has already given me in the gospel. Well, let's move to another one. Second way to develop a thankful heart. Reflect upon the mercy and grace of God in the gospel. This is very short, very easy little point here. Reflecting upon the mercy and grace of God in the gospel. I wonder when was the last time that you have pondered the fact that God has not given you, he has not given me, what I deserve. Sometimes when you say, my life has got a list about a mile long, everything wrong in my life. You got, got two hours? I'd like to tell you. What, it started way back about the third day after I was born. We moved someplace I didn't want to go. And the air stunk in the nursery. And I couldn't stand being around my little brother, whatever, my bigger brother. And give me three hours and I'll tell you everything wrong with my life. I'm telling you, if it starts first, you want to develop and inculcate and have a heart that is overflowing of thanksgiving, take some time and think about, has God given me what I deserve for any, even a moment of my life? We're swimming, we're breathing in mercy and grace every day. And we've forgotten about it. Things could be much worse, my friend, for you if it were not for the mercy and the patience of God. It could be much worse. And one of the descriptions that God uses of himself, in, uh, according to when he spoke and revealed himself to Moses in Exodus 32, and, and this is picked up and used at least four other times in Scripture. God speaks to Moses and says, okay, I'm going to tell you what I'm like, I'm going to tell you what my character is. He says this, the Lord, Yahweh, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. So that David, I think, picks up on that thought about God he was revealed back in Exodus, and he's talking to himself, saying, okay, self, start telling yourself, what do you be thankful for here? Psalm 103, and he comes to this in verse 10, when he says, Psalm 103, 10, God has not dealt with me according to my sins, nor rewarded me according to my iniquities. You chew on that for a little while, and see if you don't get some kind of sweetness that starts coming out of your heart saying, God, I am so thankful. Even though my life has been so difficult and so painful, I'll never, ever stop thanking you for not giving me what I deserve. When we consider the endless ways we've offended God and broken his laws, we gain a deeper appreciation for the grace that we've received in Christ. You think about the gospel and you think about God pouring out his holy wrath onto the sinless Son of God, Jesus Christ. He is taking on him what I deserve. It's falling on him. You can't help but say, what mercy, what grace, what undeserved favor I have received from you, O God. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for grace that continually is shown to me every day, every moment, even when I could keep on acting like the 
crazy, murmuring, old complaining guy that I am every Monday. He still shows me grace, as does my dear wife. Okay. Third point, under this second main point. Third way that would develop a thankful heart is to make good interpretations, make good interpretations of God's dealings with us. Now, I'm speaking to here to all of us. We all know that we have a, a long list of things that we deal with that are difficult in this world. But do you ever consciously choose to interpret God's providence in light of His goodness and His sovereignty? When afflictions arrive at your doorstep, do you always assume the worst at that moment? Does your mind move in the direction of automatically you draw the conclusion, God is displeased with me. Look what happened because of that and that and that and that. And this broke. This doesn't work. This person spoke to me that way. And this person did this. Oh, God, you must be displeased with me. Again, I go back to the children of Israel, the pattern of them in the wilderness. They come into a problem. They're running short on supplies. Yes, it's a problem. Yes, it's difficult. But the same God that delivered them from the hand of the Egyptian army is the same God that's leading them. And what do they say? They immediately reach the conclusion when they go into a problem and they don't have enough. They say this, God, we know you've brought us out here in this wilderness to kill all of us. That's the, that's the conclusion that we're drawing. Poor Moses. <laughs> Poor Aaron. <clears throat> Poor God, dealing with us. <clears throat> Let me fast forward. Moses endures all that complaining, all that going on for those 40 years. Not 40 days, not 40 hours, 40 years. So he gets to the end of all that wandering. He gets to the point where he's ready to launch them now into the, into the promised land. A whole other generation has come up. They're the only ones that are going to get in there. And what does he say to them? Turn in your Bibles to page 227, Deuteronomy chapter 8. Deuteronomy 8, page 227. <clears throat> he is going to give them a proper interpretation of God's providence, of the hand of God. He's going to help them understand, here's how to understand and interpret all of the difficult problems and, and challenges and shortages and everything that happened that was so difficult during those 40 years of wandering. Verse eight, chapter 8, verse 2. You shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that He might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart. He humbled you and let you be hungry. Watch that now. He humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know. Why did he do that? that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but by everything that proceeds from the mouth of God. Wow. What's he saying that for? 
because he knows they're going to go right across the Jordan River, go right into the Promised Land, and what are they going to face? Giants in the land. We're never going to be able to do this. Aren't we the children of Israel? Reincarnated? I mean, I don't believe in reincarnation. Sorry. Uh, Aren't we the children of Israel? That was not in my notes. Sorry. We are the descendants of the children of Israel. A very helpful book I'd recommend to your reading if you really want to see God change your heart in this direction. I did a study on this in Bible study some weeks ago and gleaned a number of insights from this book by Jeremiah Burroughs, a great Puritan. He wrote the book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. If you don't have that book, I strongly urge you to read and keep digging in. He gives you 150 reasons why uh, learning contentment is, is something that's so important. He says this, When affliction comes to you, you should think, it may be, it may be that the Lord intends only to test me through this. Or perhaps, he says, that my heart was too preoccupied with something that he provided for me. So he intends to show me the sinfulness of my heart. Or perhaps God saw that if my wealth continued, which means what? I'm dealing with some financial shortfall here. If my wealth continued, I would fall into sin. Or that the better my position would be, the worse my soul would be. If I had more money, maybe my soul would not be drawn to God like it is now. Or better yet, it may be that God intends to use this affliction to somehow bless me, perhaps even to prepare me for some wonderful ministry or achievement which he has ordained for me. How how you interpret the events and issues of your life, the difficulties you face in your life, how you process that, what you conclude and what you say about it in your mind makes a huge difference in what's going to be flowing out of your heart. You say, oh yeah, but uh, you don't know how hard my life is. Well, how about comparing your life to Joseph? He interpreted his brother's betrayal, his brother's uh, selling him into enslavement, and then subsequently he interpreted his imprisonment, which was on a false charge, For a number of years, he interpreted all that as that which God intended for good so that many people would be blessed and would be fed, including the Israelites. Are you able to give thanks for all, all, in all circumstances of life? Does your heart treasure the all-inclusive promise of Romans 8.28? Do you know that promise? We know that God causes, next word is a key word, God causes not some, not a few, not most, God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, who are calling according to His purpose, which He goes on to define in the next verse as being made in the image of God, in the image of Christ. That's God's agenda. Years ago, I came across a story about a man who was the only survivor of a shipwreck. And he washes up on a small, deserted island. 
uninhabited. There's nobody around. He's all by himself. So he is praying to the Lord endlessly and continuously. Lord, rescue me. Rescue me. Help me. Help me. Help me. No help seemed to be forthcoming. And so he was left with, well, what do I do? I've got to do something. I've got to sort of survive here. So he invested the time and he gathered up resources and he built a little hut, a little lean-to hut, so someplace to keep him out of the elements. And so one day, of course, he, he had a little fire in there and he has a little place. That's where he hung out. And so he, one day, after scavenging about for food, looking all around the island to try to survive, comes back and he, as he comes back to the area where his little hut, he looks and there are smoke rising there and he realizes the flame, the whole place is burned up. Somehow the sparks must have blown over. So he is just so angry. He's so frustrated. He is just saying, God, how could you do this to me? Here I am stuck by myself and now where I'm living, it's all burned up. Oh, so frustrated, so angry. Not much thankfulness in his heart at that moment. Early the next day though, he hears a sound. Clearly the sound of something that was not natural in keeping with that island and come to find out it's a ship has arrived. And here the ship has come and they're coming to rescue him and he says to them, listen, how did you know that I was here? And the answer, as you could well imagine, from the guy on the ship was what? We saw your smoke signal. Now, what's the point of the story? The point of the story is when your hut is burning, it's an opportunity for you to say, am I going to believe Romans 8.28? Am I going to interpret a hut burning as saying, this is a call and a signal that says, God, I need grace. And I need to trust you that what you're doing here is going to work together for good and to somehow find grace to say, there's reasons to be thankful even when my hut is burning. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, it is our, our honest confession today that we, uh, like the children of Israel, we are very inclined and very likely to be complainers and murmurers and people who are annoyed with you and with life and with people around us because oftentimes our idols are drawing our hearts toward that which we're not getting when we still want it. And Lord, we're stuck in that rut. I pray that you would, Lord, graciously, by your Spirit, bring to our awareness in our hearts those areas and idols that we have allowed to take away the priority and the the position of supremacy that you should have in our hearts, Lord. Thank you that the gospel gives us many reasons to be thankful. Thank you that the gospel reassures us that unthankful people can be forgiven and that we're not receiving what we deserve and that Jesus loves us in the midst of our unthankful heart, our idolatrous heart. We thank you that he has borne upon himself what we deserve on that cross. And we thank you, Lord, that there is hope for us. There's hope for all of us in the gospel. That you can take people who are unthankful, idolaters, and you can make us into people 
who are children of God and who are being transformed by various trials and difficulties and refining processes so that we become a people who are thankful no matter what because we have had our eyes opened and our hearts enriched with the promises of Christ in the gospel to us. Lord, do these things in us, we pray, not so that we can just be a people who follow customs once a year, but that we might be training ourselves for what heaven will be like of offering you an eternity of thanksgiving and praise. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.